In Parashas Lech Lecha, we see the encounter of Abraham Avinu with different kings. And we're surprised, if we look closely, the way the kings act doesn't seem to be logical. Doesn't seem to be consistent with what we would expect them to do. The first example, Abraham Avinu, because of the famine, has to come down to Mitzrayim. Abraham is scared of Parai wanting to take Sarah. He's aware that that might happen. And therefore he has the idea, so to speak, to consider her his sister and not his wife. That way, as he says, they won't kill him in order to take her for Parai. And Abraham's worst fears are materialized. Parai does take an interest in Sarah. Parah does take her to the palace and intends to marry her. And Avram, who he thinks is her brother, says the pastor, He's very good to Avram as a result. He gives him many gifts. Avram is made wealthy because the king thinks that that's the way to pay, so to speak, for the right to marry Sarah. And, as we know, Hashem intervenes Parah and his family are plagued and he's forced to return Sarah. He's forced to return Sarah that he now knows was Avram's wife. And Parah could correctly claim this is a mechachtos. This was a mistaken sale. I gave you gifts of great value because I thought I would be allowed to marry Sarah. This was meant to be in the place of the Sivlanus, what the Gemara calls the gifts that the Chosen gives the Kada. So thinking that he could marry Sarah, he gave these big gifts. And now that he's discovered that that was never ever a possibility, she was already married. So by all rights, Parish should ask for the gift back. And probably based on Halacha, Abraham would be Mukhuyev to return them. They were given under false premise. And yet we don't see Parah does that. Parah tells Abram to keep the gifts. Why would Parah do that? Having been cheated out of Sarah, so to speak, the least we would expect him to do is to ask back for the money he spent on her. So that's our first example of a question on the way a king acts. A second example. Avram's next encounter with kings in the parasha. We told of the war between the four kings and the five kings. We told of the victory of the four kings and they lead the way in captive. Lot, Avram's nephew, as well as all the other people of Stam. And Avram chases after them and manages to defeat the four powerful kings in battle. And he brings back all the people. And he brings back all the spoils. And coming to meet him is the king of Stom. Now, before we go to the next part of the story, let's remind ourselves of the mentality of Stom. Stom was a society which cared completely about money. They were way too scared to have visitors who would maybe take away from their wealth. They banned visitors. 
Islam was a society which didn't care about people. On the contrary, if they would find one of their own who had given something to a poor person, then they would kill them. And if that's the case, if we are to think, when the king of Stam is coming to meet Abram and to petition him to return something that he lost as a result of his loss in the battle to the four kings, what would we think would be the most logical thing for the king of Stam to ask for? And I would imagine that we would expect the king of Stam to say, give me back my money. That's what his life revolves around. That's what's the priority for him. So we would expect the king of Stam to say, give me the money, keep the people. And yet he says exactly the opposite. He tells Avram, you keep the money, give me the people. And we left wondering, since when is this king of Stam so into caring for his people? Why in both of these cases do we find that kings act, so to speak, in a way which is illogical? And I would like to give one more example. We know that when Yeshua ben Nun, many years later, wanted to organize the attack of Yericho, he sends two spies ahead of him. The spies, Pinchas and Kolev, enter Yericho, and they find refuge in the home of Rachav Azayna. And Rachav tells them, she says, you should know that everybody is terrified of you. They're all melting in fear. And yet, even though that's the evidence Rachav tells them, we look around and we see that the king of Yericho wasn't exactly melting in fear. He sends guards to capture the spies. He organizes defense for the city. So how are we meant to understand it? Was Rachav wrong? Was she misleading the spies? How is it that the king of Yericho doesn't seem to fit the model, so to speak, that Rachav's created of how the people are reacting? And to answer all these questions, there's an important yisot, an important principle, which we learn from a pasuk in Mishle. The pasuk says, "Leiv melachim v'sorim biyad Hashem, ba'ashe yachpoit yatenu." The hearts of kings and leaders are in the hands of Hashem. What does that mean? It means normally. Hashem doesn't interfere with people's Bechir. Normally Hashem doesn't involve Himself in people's choice. He gives people options and He lets them decide which course to follow. That's up to them. That's up to them because it's going to impact only themselves or maybe a few people around them. But when it comes to something of consequence which can impact a whole nation, something of consequence which will impact the whole world, then Hashem isn't going to leave it up to the whims of the king to decide and set in course a process which is against his rotsin. And therefore when it comes to the decision of kings, the heart of the king is in the hand of Hashem. He decides what the king is going to do. 
And therefore kings can act very illogically. They can act against their own principles. Because it's not them acting. It's Hashem is orchestrating what they're going to do. And therefore we have to look back and see what was Hashem's plan and what He wanted to happen. And the king, notwithstanding his rank or his ability to make decisions which would affect the country, was really just playing the part that Hashem intended him to play. So let's look back now at the story of Abraham Avinu and understand how the kings were being used to provide Abraham Avinu with the platform he needed to do the Avodah Hashem which was required of him. And with that, we'll ask the first question. One which should have maybe preceded the others. Why didn't Avraham Avinu give back the money to Parath? When it came to storm, he gave back the money even unsolicited. And with an explanation. King of storm, you should never say you were the one who made Abraham wealthy. I'll give you back every last shoelace. Every last thread. And if that was a noble sentiment that Abraham had, no one should be able to say they made Abraham wealthy. So why didn't Abraham say the same thing to Pari? Why didn't he tell him too? I don't want your gifts. I don't want you to be able to say you made Abraham wealthy. And the answer to this question is Abraham's cheshman wasn't if he should be personally indebted to the king or not. Abraham's cheshman is what's going to make a Kedosh Hashem? What's going to make a Kedosh Hashem? How is the world going to recognize Hashem more? This was the primary thought throughout Abraham's life. This was the primary factor in every decision Abraham made. What's going to create more of an awareness of Kedosh Hashem? And therefore, when it came to Storm, what had happened? Four kings had gathered from different parts of the planet. Four kings had marched for years on their campaign to destroy Storm and its neighboring cities and were victorious. And now Abraham goes to confront them in battle and Abraham defeats them. The whole world knew about that. The whole world recognized the nest. So much so that the place where the king of Storm comes to meet Abraham is called Amek Hamelech, the valley of the king says Rashi, quoting the Midrash, because it was here that all the nations gathered and decided to crown Abram as a king. He earned it. He had destroyed the united armies of the four strongest kings. And therefore the Kiddush Hashem which came out of attacking and defeating the four kings was complete. Had Avram gained physically from it, had he kept the wealth of Storm, it would have minimized the Kedosh Hashem. Avram was looking to make money. Avram was seeking to capture bounty. The fact that he took nothing. And therefore the sole motivation in going to fight was to keep his promise to Lot. That would only add to increase the Kedosh Hashem. And therefore Avram says to the king of Storm, you didn't ask for it. You did not even request it. 
but I'm returning every single item I took in spoils which belong to Stone. Whereas, whereas with Pyro, the story was very different. Pyro took Sarah into his household. Everybody knew that. And they knew that Sarah was returned to Abram. Not everybody knew the circumstances of what had happened. Maybe she had gone with Pyro. Maybe Pyro had some other problem with her. The nace wasn't apparent. No one knew out of Pyra's inner circle that he had been punished and prevented from marrying Sarah. And if that's the case, the nace that Hashem had stepped in and protected Sarah wasn't well known. What was Abraham's way to publicize that nace? The way to publicize the nace was to keep the gifts that Pari had given him. Because if Pari had had a complaint with Sarah, then by right he should have taken all the gifts back. And by keeping the gifts, it was showing that Pari had no complaints against Sarah. And if he had to return it to Abram, it was obviously because he had to do it, not because he wanted to. And therefore, Abraham felt that the Kiddush Hashem would be bigger. By the fact that people would be... No, where did Abraham get all this wealth from? From Pari. Why did Pari give it to him? Because he wanted to marry Sarah. And what happened? Well, he never did, because Sarah came back home. And why didn't he take back the gifts? It must be because it wasn't his decision that he decided not to marry Sarah, and therefore he could have asked for the gifts back. So that explains Abraham. But why did the kings play the part which they needed to play in order to let Abram do that? Why did Pari not ask for the gifts back? Because had he demanded them, then probably halakhically he had the right to, to, to force Abram to return it. Why didn't the king of Stom ask for the money? And in which case giving it to him would have been what he wanted. It wouldn't have been an expression of Kedosh Hashem. Here's the Yisrael we saw before. The principle we learnt. The heart of the king is in the hands of Hashem. And therefore, Hashem will orchestrate what the king does and what the king says so that it fits in with his plan. And in this case, that plan was to give Avraham Avinu the chance to make a Kedosh Hashem. And now we can look at the story of Yerichai as well. Chazal tell us, the Gemara says, that before Yeshua entered Eretz Yisrael, he offered all the kings of of Canaan three options. He said, either leave, or surrender, or fight. That was only an option before they crossed the Yarden. Once they crossed the Yarden and entered Eretz Yisrael, then surrender was no longer an option. They were now commanded to fight, and not just to fight, but to destroy every inhabitant of the seven nations. And therefore, Rachov was right. The people of Canaan were terrified. And had the people been the ones to make the decision, they would have for sure surrendered. They were too scared to do anything. But Hashem's plan was that they shouldn't surrender. Hashem's plan was that they should be destroyed. 
and therefore he bolsters the heart of the king. That the king isn't sharing the sentiment everyone else feels. He is willing to fight. And what happens, if you look closely at the Pasuk, it's an unbelievable thing. When Yeshua crosses the Jordan River, and now the Jewish people have entered the Eretz Yisrael, and now surrender is no longer an option, the Pasuk says that all the Malchik Nan, all the kings of the countries, of the city-states of Canaan, who hear about Yeshua's coming into Eretz Yisrael, it says they all melt in fear. Now when surrender is no longer an option, now Hashem restores to them the feeling that they would have had naturally otherwise. Because Lev Melachim Biyad Hashem. You know when an election approaches, and everyone thinks it's of great significance, the choice of the candidate is going to change policy, it's going to change the world, it's going to rewrite how things run. Shift the balance of power. I'd like to share with you two stories. The first happened in Eretz Yisrael about 18 years ago. There was elections like there are regularly in Eretz Yisrael. And the Haredi parties were promoting a certain candidate. The opposition publicly said that he's, if he comes into power, he's going to not work with the Haredi parties, he's going to allow widespread Chil Shabbos and other such things. And what happened in the election was that the candidate that the Haredim was supporting lost. And everyone was very worried. What's going to be now? So to speak, the enemy won. So they went to Rav Steinman, who was then the god Lador. Rabbeinu, what do we do now? We lost the election. And Rav Steinman was unfazed. So what? So what? So... The, the campaign promises of the one who came to power was that he's going to, Michal Shabbos, he's going to destroy the other basic religious principles that's kept in Israel. And Rav told him he's nothing to worry about. He said, when he made the campaign promises, he was a campaigner. Now he's a king. Now he's in power. And now that he's in power, Lev Melachim B'yad Hashem. What happened? Because as often happens there in Israel, there was a stalemate in power. And the winning candidate needed the Haredim to make a coalition. So he promised them everything they wanted. Because it was no longer up to him to decide. There's a story I heard from the grandsons of the Chofetz Chaim, a similar idea. You know that Agoras Israel in Poland, which the Chofetz Chaim stood at the helm of, also decided to participate in the elections. The candidate they put forward as a representative for a seat in the Polish Senate, which is the Polish Parliament, was none other than Reb Meir Shapira. The outside was this week. For six years, Reb Meir Shapira was a member of Parliament in Poland, from 1922 until 1928. And when Agoras Yisrael at the time decided to enter the elections in 1922, the Chofetz Chaim was very active in trying to convince people to vote. He wrote letters. He went around the neighboring towns to talk about it. To promote people voting on Godless Yisrael. And when, as always in that after the elections, everyone starts counting the votes. Want everyone to know who won and how many seats. 
So the Chafetz Chaim's son-in-law who was with him asked him, when they announced their results, should I interrupt you to be sitting in the wedding? Should I interrupt you to tell you how the well Agudas Yisrael did? And he says, no. So he says, maybe you don't want to disturb your wedding. Should I tell you afterwards? And the Chafetz Chaim says, no. He said, I don't want to know. It doesn't make a difference. Sayin was shocked. He said, but you worked so hard to promote it. You campaigned so hard for, the, for them to win. Zohar Chaim said, what I campaigned to win was I held with Ishtadlis. What I needed to do. What happens afterwards is irrelevant. Because whoever won is Lev Melachim B'Yad Hashem. Whoever the ruling body or the ruling person is going to be, the decisions that they take are going to be beyond Hashem. So it doesn't really make a difference anymore. There's a Gemara in Shabbos, and I'm going to end with this. And I'd like to suggest that this is the interpretation of the Gemara. The Gemara says, He says, If all the skies were parchments, and all the reeds were quills, and the entire ocean was ink, and all humanity were scribes. So that's a tremendous amount of writing. You're using the expanse of the heavens as parchment. You have the entire human population as scribes, and you have the sea and ocean of ink. With all of that, says the Gemara, you wouldn't be able to write Chalolo Shel Rushus. Rashi explains that as the decisions a king takes. Shneamar, the Pasuk says, Shemaim Lerum, Ve'eretz Lo'imek, Ve'lev Melochim Ein Cheker. The heart of the king is unfathomable. What's the Gemara trying to say? Are we trying to give Shevach to the kings? Praise them? That their intentions are so deep that it would take more than an ocean of ink to explain? It doesn't say you wouldn't write Libo Shal it says Chalolo Shel Rishos. A Chalal is like a void. It's a black hole. You could be political scientists and strategists. You could write as much as you wanted. You would never be able to predict what a king is going to do. Leiv Melachim Ein Cheker. The heart of the king has no way of predicting. Because it's a Chalal. Because it's empty. Because it's not the king's decision. And therefore, analysts who understand this is his understanding, and this is what the king is going to decide, and this is the policy he is going to make, you could speculate until tomorrow. You can write treatises on the topic using the entire heavens as the parchment. But you'll never end it. Because it's a halal. It's an anon. It's ein chayker. There's no way of knowing. Why is leiv melachim ein chayker? Because Lev Melachim Biyad Hashem. Because the decision that the king takes is ultimately what Hashem is pushing him to take.